Father, this day, I pray that our souls would be captivated by your holiness, that as we see the revelation of Christ our Lord displayed in his holy word, that this truth would pierce deeply into our souls, that it would so move us to place our faith and our attention and our affections in the holiness, the redemptive work, the magnificent power and glory that you displayed when you interrupted, Lord, this sinful world with the message of hope and salvation and God become man in Christ our Lord. Lord, I pray that we would become more acquainted with the truth of the knowledge of you revealed in Jesus, the Word made flesh, as we open up these scriptures. And I pray that we would rejoice with all whose hearts have truly been changed and whose lives and minds and souls are continually filled with the knowledge of their salvation, that our praise would join theirs, the saints of old and the saints yet to come. Lord, as we worship you as our King and our Lord, our Savior and our God. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would be glorified and magnified in the proclamation of your word this day so that you might be featured in the glories and facets of your beauty and power. And I pray, Lord, that as the message of the gospel once again touches our souls, that it would equip and enable us to have courage in proclaiming it to a world that is yet in darkness still. Thank you for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we appreciate it today in your holy Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. This morning I have a message for you from John chapter 12. Would you turn in your Bibles to John 12, 36 through 41? In a moment we'll stand for the reading of the word. The title of this morning's sermon is Conception Eve. Conception Eve. A kind of intriguing two words I thought to pair together to ask this question. Where was Jesus Christ? The moment before, the day before, if you will, he became conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Where was Jesus the day before he took on flesh? The answer to this question is profound indeed, and it comes from Scripture. The aim of this morning's message is to rescue the image of Christ in our minds from popular notions of Christmas. To rescue the image of Christ in our minds from popular notions of Christmas. That is to say, what Christmas means, what Christ is, the incarnation. This time of year is full of connotations, memories, sentiments, and ideas, religious and otherwise, that swirl around in our culture. Some of them, however, are less than helpful, but all of them be, can be judged rightfully when held up to the standard of God's Word. So let us consider Christ according to the Scriptures. And let us add to our consideration of Christ His eternal glory. Stand with me if you would, and if you're able, with your Bible open to John chapter 12, and let us consider together God's holy Word as it's recorded for us in verses 36 through 41. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Reading again that last verse, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Perhaps we reference the glory of God so often that it's easy to lose a definition or the correct idea to associate with that term, the glory of God. If someone asks you, what is the glory of God? I wonder how you'd answer. I asked myself this question this week, gave a little thought and studied to it, and came up with a working definition for us today. Let us consider this following definition to reinforce our understanding of the glory of God. Perhaps we could say the glory of God is the infinite perfections of God in His worth, works, attributes, majesty, splendor, honor, and dignity. If you have a copy of notes this morning, that definition will appear in that first paragraph. The glory of God is, we could say perhaps, the infinite perfections of God in His worth, His works, and attributes, in His majesty, and splendor, and honor, and dignity. Certainly not an exhaustive definition, but some words and phrases to attach to that concept something of its biblical meaning. The popular ideas of Jesus associated with Christmas will be misguided at best without the attending understanding and appreciation of His eternal, forever glory. The ideas of Jesus that we entertain around this time of year, that become a cultural reality for us, they will be misguided at best without the attending understanding and appreciation of His forever, His eternal glory. So we can correct our thoughts and feast our hearts and souls upon some realities of Scripture to make sure that we don't sell the knowledge of Christ short on days like this, are realizing the weight of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, Jesus conceived His conception and birth. Our realizing the weight of these things hinges, I submit to you, on answers to two questions. And here they are. First question, where was Jesus the day before he was conceived? Where was Jesus on conception eve, if you will? Secondly, to where did Jesus ascend? When Jesus ascended, where did he go? And where is he now, you could add to this. It may seem more natural to us in our imagination to think of Jesus among us as we find Him in the Gospels, in the narrative record, teaching the message of the kingdom, perhaps, yes, even doing amazing miracles, signs, and wonders. Nevertheless, 
The Word of God is clear, and we find this in John 12, our passage today. The knowledge of Jesus, limited to this capacity, that is merely His earthly ministry, is insufficient. To truly appreciate Jesus Christ, we must behold our God in His eternal glory. Behold your God, a message delivered to us a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Kenny Stokes pointed us to Isaiah 40. This morning, the Apostle John points us to Isaiah again. He points us toward Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6. And then Isaiah, in these passages in context, points us to the glory of God. Jesus himself points us to the glory of God. His nature, His character, His infinite perfections, His worth, works, attributes, majesty, splendor, honor, and dignity in these texts today. So let us consider this text then this morning and its references under this heading. Jesus' eternal glory is foundational to revelation of Him as the following. Number one, Son of Man. Number two, Suffering Servant. And number three, sovereign of sovereigns. The eternal glory of Jesus Christ is absolutely foundational to know Him, to realize Him, to understand Him, to receive the revelation of Him as the Son of Man, as we find in John chapter 12. As the suffering servant, as we find in Isaiah 52 and 53. And as the sovereign of sovereigns, as we find Him. In Isaiah chapter 6. So let us consider these in context this morning. First of all, Jesus' eternal glory, foundational to the revelation of Him as Son of Man. In our text today, we open with verse 36. And the second portion, it says, When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Let's rewind a little and see what things Jesus had said. But let's notice as we rewind in chapter 12 and even to the beginning of the book of John how central the theme of the glory of Christ is to the gospel of John in the first place. In John chapter 1, you remember those famous words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This glorious prologue, perhaps my favorite in all of Scripture, builds to a crescendo, and we have these words in verse 14. Of course, course, speaking of Christ, the apostle says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you seen that glory? Have you, saints, sitting here, have you, Listener to this sermon, seen the glory of Jesus Christ? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace? Have you seen that glory in His holy word? In John chapter 12, the theme of glory again comes to the fore in a number of citations throughout the text. In verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered 
that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You see there that the understanding of the disciples hinged upon realizing his glory. Only upon the glorification of Jesus, where he went upon his ascension, did it dawn on the, on the disciples. That's who he is. That's his glory. Glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we continue verse 23, Jesus himself references his glory. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, in this planting metaphor of wheat bearing fruit, is pointing to himself and saying, in so many words, this unassuming seed, this man in flesh you see before you, is on the threshold, on the cusp of being glorified. And you have no idea the kind of fruit that will spring forth. Can you take a microscope and place a wheat seed underneath and tell how many bushes are contained in multiple generations of that seed, a seed being planted once it springs up and those seeds then being planted? There's no possible way from our perspective. Could you take an apple seed and place it under a microscope and look and see a beautiful tree with trunk thick and rich with sap blossoming and blooming to hundreds and hundreds of apples? It's impossible to see. Yet to appreciate the power of that seed, you must realize that there's more to it than meets the eye. And so it is with Christ. There is more to our Lord and Savior than met the eye of His disciples when he walked the earth. You might wish that you had been there. Oh, to see him turn bread or to multiply the bread and the fishes. Oh, to see him turn the water into wine. But our text makes clear today that there were plenty who saw those things who did not realize him in his fullness because he, they did not appreciate as of yet his glory. We see in verse 26, Christ crying out, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven answers in Trinitarian conversation, God the Father responding to God the Son audibly from the realms of glory. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Later we, we see in verse 41 in our text this morning, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah had a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ even before he was incarnate. And he saw his eternal glory. That was foundational to his understanding of who the Savior would be. Finally, we see by contrast that men exchanged this kind of knowledge, revelation, the glory of, the God, of God for something lesser, something cheap, something that perishes with the using, something that betrays their depravity. In fact, verse 43, we'll back up to 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Listen, verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from from God. 
And so we see in our text today, it behooves us that if we are to understand and appreciate Christ, we must appreciate His eternal glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 12, again verse 12 through 19, Jesus is speaking. The next day, or we see Him interacting with crowds. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And that's the context, which is followed by this note in the text, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. We see something similar a chapter over about how an understanding of even the events that were happening to Christ was contingent upon realizing His glory. In John 13, through, uh, John 13, verse 6, Jesus has been washing the disciples' feet. Simon Peter protests in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, that is Jesus, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What was missing? What was the factor the decisive moment that was yet to come where Peter would realize the power, the weight, the meaning of this moment. Or the disciples, as they witnessed a triumphal entry, discovered in their souls, this is the fulfillment of prophecies of old. Well, our text tells us it was the glorification of Christ. In His resurrection and ascension glory, that is to say, Understanding where he would return to the right hand of the Father. Fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. As the one, the Son of Man, arriving before the Ancient of Days. In conquering triumph, receiving as the rewards of his great redemptive act. Lordship over all the kingdoms of the earth. In this resurrection and ascension glory. Suddenly, the miracles, the ministry, the attending events of Christ began to fall into place in the minds of His disciples. That is the meaning of His ministry, His miracles, His person, His work, His events, redemption itself, the cross, His resurrection, His salvation, hinged, the understanding of the meaning of all those things, hinged upon His glorification. What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will. That is to say, after Christ was resurrected and after He was ascended, a whole new perspective dawned upon the faithful followers of Christ. This is a whole shade much brighter of His glory than anything they had dared uh, to realize thus far. Jesus' eternal glory is foundational to the revelation of Him, the understanding of Him as Son of Man. So we've talked about His resurrection and ascension glory. But let us rewind pre-incarnation. What about His glory pre-incarnate? Well, these same ideas are expressed 
the ideas of Christ's glory before he took on flesh are expressed in another place. Turn over a couple verse or uh, chapters to John 17. Here again in intertrinitarian dialogue where God the Father and God the Son are communicating with one another. We have glorious revelation indeed. Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Does that ring a bell? Our text in chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So now, recognizing His hour has come, He lifts His eyes to His heavenly Father, and He says, Glorify, verse 1, your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. And notice, with the glory that I had with you, before the world existed. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, was glorified with the Father forever before He took on flesh and became a man to accomplish the work of redemption. And in order for us to know Him, to truly know Him as He is revealed, we must realize His glory in resurrection and ascension, His glory associated with His pre-incarnate existence. That is to say, where He was on conception eve, the day before He took on flesh. He Himself says, this is eternal life that they may know you, that is God the Father, and Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. May we know Him today as we appreciate His glory that He retained with the Father before He stooped so condescended to us, took on flesh, became a man, an infant in fact, in the womb of a virgin. Now the basis of this revelation of His glory associated with His resurrection and ascension, His glory associated with His eternal Sonship, becomes the basis for His glory proclaimed. That is, Christ proclaims the gospel Himself in verse 23, back in our text. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you again, this picture of grain sown and then flourishing. He continues, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is preaching the gospel. And we continue to hear him unfold the message of the kingdom in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was to die. Listen to the crowd's response, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Do you see? They were confused. They did not understand these words. Why? Because even the disciples, 
Their vision, their understanding was somewhat clouded because Christ was not yet glorified. They had not realized who was speaking to them. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed and hid himself from them. The people were obtuse. They didn't understand. They couldn't process. They were confused. At best, angry. In some cases, even taking up stones, desiring to kill him. They wanted to slaughter Lazarus as well, a man who was raised from the dead by the power of Jesus' glorious hand. We see that in the previous chapter. Why? Because the eternal glory of Jesus Christ is foundational to the revelation of him. Here in these passages I just read, the gospel is coming from the mouth of Christ himself. Could there be a more powerful preacher? Yet it fell on clueless ears because they did not grasp the foundational reality of His eternal glory. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man was eternally God and glorified with the Father before He took on flesh and stooped low. The passage that was read in the worship text, Philippians 2, 5-11, through speaks of the theology of this event. Christmas is the event. Philippians 2, 5-11 through is the theology. Christ, who was in the form of God, took on flesh, the form of a servant, stooped low, and then was glorified again. So that is the scope, the shape of redemption. Christ, the eternal God, stooped low, took on flesh, became a man. Retains, and now as both God and man, retains his humanity, yet was glorified in his ascension, and now rules and reigns per 1 Corinthians 15, placing his enemies under his feet. This is the eternal glory of which the scripture speaks. And even the words of Christ himself will fall on deaf ears unless we realize who is speaking. Secondly, major point, Jesus' eternal glory is foundational to revelation of him as suffering servant. John goes in this text, or proceeds in this text to reference two quotes, citations from Isaiah It says in verse 37, John 12, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What John recognizes here is Jesus was not alone. He was in good company with prophetic voices of old who had spoken the truth and it had fallen on deaf ears and hard hearts. Isaiah was given a ministry to proclaim the message of the Savior to come. He had seen His glory, and yet as he proclaimed His glory and brought the Word, yes, the very Word of God, to the hearing of the people, the people couldn't care less. They stopped their ears, refused to hear. They closed their eyes, willfully blind. They continued in their sin. And why was this the case? Because I submit to you that they did not realize the eternal glory behind the words, behind the person that Isaiah proclaimed. So this, thus these terms of revelation were true in the ministry of Isaiah, just as they were true 
in the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Apostle John. Turn back with me to Isaiah 53. We'll gain the context of the suffering servant. Isaiah is proclaiming the Messiah to come who would suffer for the sins of the people and thus secure their atonement. But he does so recognizing the eternal glory that is associated with the one who had accomplished this great act. Rewinding a little in Isaiah 52, verse 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Here is language of glorification. In fact, if you took a highlighter on your, in your study time later and just highlighted each shall statement in Isaiah 52 and 53, you'll find the eternal glory of Jesus Christ emphasized in each phrase that is salted into this text of the suffering servant. Consider verse 15 of 52. He shall, or he shall, so shall he, excuse me, sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. He shall sprinkle many nations, meaning his blood shall be sprinkled for the atonement of whole peoples, kings in fact, rulers, authorities. The highest imaginable among men shall shut their mouths because of him. So this is the glory behind the one who will suffer for the sins of the people. Verse 4 of 53 describes his grief and sorrows. It says that he was he has borne these things for us. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We're familiar with that text, are we not? But as we continue verse 10, it says in the second half of this verse that he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Later, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In each phrase here, Isaiah is mindful of the eternal glory of the suffering servant. These shall statements indicate his glory that would be manifest in his resurrection and his ascension. Him rising from the grave victorious to reap the spoils of his war campaign and his raising from the spiritual grave sinners unto confession and faith and salvation, repentance in his name alone. The suffering servant is proclaimed and prophesied in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 5, continue with the gospel right from the mouth of an ancient prophet, the most articulate, perhaps, messenger Messianic prophet declares the following, Who has believed what they heard from us? In verse 1, chapter 53 again of Isaiah, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. What is he prophesying here? How Jesus would arrive on the scene. He's using planting language like Christ himself did. He's speaking Something like uh, seed to fruit language when he describes a root and dry ground. No form, no majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. If we considered him, that is to say, only in his human form, did not realize his eternal glory. Behind this act, we'd be missing something indeed. Why did he take on this form? Verse 3, he was despised, rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one who men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But again, in so doing, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was wounded, in verse 5, for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Here is the gospel from the most articulate messianic prophet, in my judgment anyway, yet falling on clueless ears. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people didn't get it in Isaiah's time, just like the people didn't get it when Jesus himself spoke the words of fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Why is this recorded in Scripture? It's to emphasize, may I submit to you, that void of further revelation, the message of the gospel will be met with incredulity. The sinner does not understand. It doesn't make sense. It isn't logical. Who is Christ? I don't get it. But there is more to the story than often meets the eye. There's always more to the story than meets the sinful eye. And so let us pray that the eyes of the understanding of the lost be open that they might see. And that God would give them ears to hear, to see the eternal glory behind the man, Jesus Christ. Glory prophesied of old in Isaiah 53 and manifest in time in John chapter 12. Behold your God. The author, Isaiah, the prophet, continues to call the attention of those who had ears to hear. Behold your God. His eternal glory set aside to take on the role of suffering servant, to atone for your sins and for mine. Behold Him in His eternal glory. I listened to um, an Orthodox Jew. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of him. Ben Shapiro, young guy, preeminently witty, sharp as can be, fear, fearless in debate and fearsome at the same time. And I listen to his podcast, I find it a little interesting, I enjoy some of his commentary. Once a week he has what he calls Bible talk. He's an Orthodox Jew, he doesn't believe the New Testament is the Word of God, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, he believes that he was perhaps a, a noble fellow who tried the best he could to lead a revolt against the tyrants of the day, but generally unsuccessful. And it strikes me, he knows the Hebrew he has a rich heritage as a Jew. He grew up in a home that has a general reverence for these things. He believes, as far as his confession is concerned, that the Old Testament is in fact the Word of God. But when he gives his Bible talk, it falls so far short in a sad way. I pray that he would know the Messiah that is prophesied in the words he reads in the original tongue over and over. But as of yet, the best he can offer is some ancient aphorisms, a little bit of wisdom, interesting, curious, and surprisingly applicable for today. Is this all the Bible is? Even if we have something of a respect for this ancient text? Well, without acknowledging the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal glory of the Word made flesh, the fact that these words are delivered to us, revealing the one to come. Christ says of all the scriptures, they speak of me. If there's no Christ, 
there's no scripture. If you don't know him, who he truly is, you might as well file this book on the shelf next to the Quran or any other Book of Mormon, vain attempt by man to put a few pious words together to describe in confusing tomes what it means to be a, a metaphysical being and a physical being and hopefully some hope for the future afterlife, a crush to make me feel good in the uncertainty and tragedy of life. There is so much more, but there is only one way to see it, and it's through Jesus Christ. Finally, let us consider the experience of Isaiah that opened up his eyes to see. This final point, Jesus' eternal glory is foundational to the revelation of him as sovereign of sovereigns, is drawn from Isaiah chapter 6. John 12 refers to this moment when he said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In other words, Isaiah had a perspective, an understanding, a realization, a revelation that was different than most everyone during his time. What made the difference? The difference was Isaiah saw his, Jesus' glory. That is to say, the answer to the question, where was Jesus on Conception Eve, is answered, comes to us in Isaiah chapter 6. This is the glory of Jesus Christ proclaimed by the prophet that he shared with the Father before he stooped so low to take on flesh in the womb of a virgin. We read it in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, capital letters L-O-R-D, designates that highest name for God, Yahweh. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. John 12, 41. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw Jesus Christ. Jesus Yahweh, sitting on, upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is filled with His, let me pause, infinite perfections of God and His worth, works, attributes, majesty, splendor, honor, dignity, and everything else biblical encapsulated in this phrase, glory, this word glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response, verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The eyes of the prophet had seen the pre-incarnate glory had seen Jesus manifest in all of His glorious majesty and power and authority and dignity and honor and splendor on this throne. And He was undone. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. His eyes had seen the King, the Lord of hosts, seen Him in His glory, surrounded by celestial creatures who perpetually sing, Holy, holy, holy. And He became acutely aware of His sin and desperate need of atonement. And it was answered in Christ. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That, that's the verse. That was cited in John 10. It raises the question, what is the difference between Isaiah and all those who heard his message? Note the difference in effect. When the glory of the Lord was proclaimed to Isaiah, it was attended with a revelation of the pre-incarnate sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And thus he cried out in repentance, he was answered with atonement and moved to obedience at any cost. And then when the message went forward, because the people did not see the glory of Christ revealed, the way Isaiah's eyes were sovereignly opened, they kept on hearing but did not understand. They kept on seeing but did not perceive. Do you see how these passages illustrate to us that often the image of Christ that is shaped by popular notions, even ideas associated with Christmas needs to be rescued in our minds? Because of all we know of Christ is things that we prefer, things that we can relate to. A God with skin on who makes me feel comfortable, brings me away in daydreams towards peaceful places. I imagine being rocked in the cradle next to him on the silent night or whatever, if all of these revelations, as good as they may be, are devoid of his eternal glory behind them, then it's not the same as what the shepherds saw on that night when they were filled with heavenly hosts and they were struck with fear and cried out. And their fears were only assuaged when they realized that this display of the imperfect, or infinite perfections of God proclaimed through the heavenly host, declared His worth, His works, His attributes, His majesty, His splendor, His honor and dignity, and He has come to dwell with you, only then could they realize the weight and the significance of this babe in manger. For everyone else, it might have been a curious news story, but it wasn't their salvation. It wasn't their hope. It wasn't their Messiah. They were missing something. Recall Simon Peter in Luke 5, 8. Jesus had just done a miracle. He, and they netted all these fish. It lands on the boat. And Simon realizes something he hadn't realized before. That he is speaking to someone who is more glorious than any man. And he cries out, depart from me, for I am a sinner. That response is the same as Isaiah's. Why? Because for the first time, he realized the glory and sovereignty, the eternal power 
that was manifest in our text today at Conception's Eve, where Christ was revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign of the universe, maker, creator, sustainer of all things. And in the light of this knowledge, suddenly our wickedness, our sin, our finitude, our weakness becomes stark and reprehensible. And Peter cried out for atonement, as it were, and it was eventually supplied in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel sees a revelation in chapter 1, 28, of the eternal glory of the Godhead, and he falls down on his face and can barely contain the weight of what he sees. John in Revelation 1, 17, lay as though dead before the windows open to the glory of God, the glory of the eternal Christ. These were men in the Scriptures who beheld their God and Savior in the fullness of His glory. That is, they realized they were in the presence of one whose infinite perfections could only be accounted for in the fact that they were God Himself in flesh, whose worth, works, attributes, majesty, majesty, splendor, honor, and dignity was worthy of the highest of praise and whose presence is unapproachable without atonement. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ pre-incarnation when the Son was in the form of God, Philippians 2, 6. He beheld a glimpse of the state from which Christ condescended or came down or stooped low. In that place, heavenly temple worship surrounded the throne room and the holiness of God Himself was extolled and is extolled by the perpetual seraphim, the angels who cry, Thrice holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And on the eve of conception, the divine eternal Son, Jesus Christ, arose from this throne to veil His eternal glory, taking on the form, if you will, of a zygote, a single cell, developing in the womb of the Virgin Mary. All of this to accomplish our redemption. Behold your God. Let us close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would open the ears of our hearing, our spiritual sight, and the wellspring of our soul's affections to the eternal glory of Christ Himself. I pray that as you do so, it would send the roots of our faith down deep into streams of living water that would make for unshakable trees who will stand in every storm until the day you call us home. I pray, Lord, that you would shape and conform and transform our thinking to the image of Christ our Lord. Pray that you would do it through the proclamation even of your scriptures this day. And Lord, may we be left in awe and fear and joy, relief, worship, in both weight and joy, may we consider your revelation 
given to us in your holy word, Son of Man, Suffering Servant, and Sovereign of Sovereigns. We worship and praise you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, because there is none like you. And we look forward to the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that you are King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.